In the digital reality, evolution over revolution prevails. The QA approaches and techniques that worked yesterday will fail you tomorrow. So free your mind. The automation cyborg has been sent back in time. TED speaker Jonathan Wright's mission is to help you save the future from bad software. Hello and welcome to the show. Today I've got Phil Burgess, who's a famous podcaster. So I've got a lot to learn from him. 200 episodes. And he's got a great blog on his LinkedIn profile that talks all about what he's learned from his Energizer IT career podcast. So, you know, Phil, I'd love to welcome you onto the show. And for the listeners, would you just be able to give us a brief intro to, A, your podcast, and also to uh, what you've been doing in the QA world? Sure. So, first of all, thank you for inviting me onto your show. Um, so, talking about the the IT Career Energizer podcast, so that's been running um, about, it's just coming out to its third uh, year anniversary, and I think it'll be 250 episodes pretty much around the same time. Um, so the idea behind that particular podcast was to provide uh, individuals who are thinking about coming into the industry or maybe with a bit of experience an understanding of what other people have been going through, their sort of career stories and a bit of a sort of, um, you know, sort of highlights trip across what they've done and, and sort of gleaning from them career tips. And we probably go into a little bit of depth in each one. And then I asked them a little bit about, you know, how they became uh, interested in getting into IT themselves and what they would do differently now if that, if that was the case and and so forth and and there's usually um quite a bit of conversation around you know particularly what opportunities exist in in the uh industry going forward so yeah um as i say 240 i think it is now um and more to come definitely it's something i'll probably continue for as long as i feel i can yeah, that, I must admit, there was some great advice. You know, I binge listen, and it was completely addictive. It literally was half of my afternoon. And, you know, there was some really good advice, you know, especially about, you know, if you don't love your job, you know, you've got to, you've really got to think about, you know, what's best for you and, 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 and be happy, right? And yeah. I think there was some great advice there and actually some, you know, some top tips as well where people had had, you know, bad experiences, good experiences, and a lot of lessons to be learned. And I think if, there's a lot of people who are out there who have maybe are in the same role and they feel a bit restricted or they feel, you know, like they're not really meeting their full potential. So I definitely advise them to, to listen in. So so what's the best way to, to, to download the show or at least uh, subscribe? Yeah, sure. I'm sure it's very similar to your own. Um, the best way probably is through Apple Podcasts. You've got an iPhone. You'll find the little sort of pinky purple app on there. And if you search for IT Career Energizer or just Career Energizer, it should pop up. Um, and you'll be able to download episodes and subscribe. If you're not a uh, an Apple person, um, there are other apps such as uh, Stitcher. I think Google have now released their new version, excuse me, which is, I think, Google Podcasts. Um, but there's all sorts of other ways. There's plenty of podcast streaming apps out there that you can uh, find the uh, podcast on. Excellent. And, you know, I, I joke around uh, the, the, the quality energy uh, bunny. And literally, you were kind <laughs> of a, a nonstop going machine. I was I was really quite impressed. I've, I've literally learned more than I've ever done about podcasting in, in, in those six hours. So, you know, definitely download the show. And what I'm really looking forward to is finding out, 
you know, what you've been up to because, you know, you've been in the industry for over 20 years. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. It makes me feel very old when we say that as well. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I started in the 90s as well. And, and what I really find now is I'm either referring to it as I started in the last millennium. And, you know, this is getting quite concerning, really. Yeah, I think it's even worse when you start working with people um, who hadn't been born when your career started. That that makes you feel terrible. Gen Z, that's the <laughs> we, we talked to them about them yesterday uh, with uh, Theo, who's a he's a, a fellow Teb speaker. He writes for Forbes uh, magazine, and you know, partly he was kind of interviewing for his podcast series uh, a twelve-year-old a futurist who literally was talking about uh, and started a movement around what the future should look like with technology, and it's just. It's, it's unbelievable what's you know the the generations are doing now and how they use the technology and I guess you know from when you started it, you'd obviously you've you've got quite a um, a lot of experience from when you did your degree yeah. did you ever think you were going to get involved with doing quality uh, no I'll be, I'll be honest so I mean just rolling back to when I did my degree it had absolutely nothing to do with IT whatsoever so. You're talking, yeah, end of the 80s. Um, and my interest at that time was very much around property. Um, and I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do when I left school. So I took a year out to decide and eventually ended up going to university and doing a degree on, in building surveying. So completely different to where I ended up. But I think the, the reason it did happen was was going back to that degree um, was at that time, it was probably very early stages of the sort of the desktop computer being around. And the packages that were being uh, used at the time were things like, I was trying to think back, things like WordStar and SuperCalc and, and all these things. Um, and, and that began to pique my interest in what was possible with the computer. Um, and obviously doing a degree in, in something like that, it was very architecturally driven. Things like AutoCAD are also coming along more on the mainframes than anything else. And again, I was far, far more interested in doing those sorts of things than I probably was in the rest of the degree. So yeah, eventually I suppose I was already, already, um, on my way to, uh, to a, a career in the IT industry. And in actual fact, I would I probably guess that there's more to do with quality within surveying than there is probably in a standard computing course. Well, yes. So, I mean, yeah, probably going back to that question about quality. So, yeah, I mean, the importance um, around quality and things like safety checks and, and standards and all that sort of stuff is very much embedded within the the uh, building and property um, industry. So there was a lot around, I remember, yeah, good to throw my mind back now. But yeah, there was a lot of regulation that you had to understand. Um, and yeah, so quality was a very important aspect of it. So I think, yes, pr presumably that would give me a, a nice grounding and understanding the importance and, and the meaning of quality. Absolutely. And I, I, I literally work for the, the UK's biggest constru uh, construction building construction firm, and they they have a platform called Co Coins, and it's a construction platform. And I guess things have moved on from the from the word uh, word uh, pre uh, perfect days and, you know, Lotus uh, yep. one, two, three. Uh, but they had, you know, for each house, for each property, each plot, they have Bill of Quants, which was, you know, they'd have 20,000 
you know, components that would build a house. They'd have all the plans. They'd have all the blueprints. They'd have all the logistics. They'd have all the suppliers, the the brickies who were, you know, and the timescales. And, and I guess that's probably where, you know, did your love for kind of pr- program management kind of come in? Or how did you develop this kind of career into kind of program test management? Yeah. Oh. So I suppose part of the degree was a management aspect to it as well. So that that definitely helped. But um, it, it wasn't intentional, and, and I think many of these things tend not to be. So I, I ended up, um, after finishing university, deciding that, that working in the building industry was exactly what I didn't want to do. So it was a case of then trying to decide what what it was that did interest me. So I ended up working for a pharmaceutical company not too far from where I was living at the time. And they were doing a systems implementation. It was something very simple um, in terms of the way they were approaching it. it. Was was to do a parallel run between their old system and the new the new system. And I got very much involved in in doing that in a very sort of manual comparison process. But on the back of that, I got um, asked by the software company who were implementing the the, uh, the new system to. Um, go to them for for an interview and it was from that point that my career began and and that's how I landed my first sort of testing and QA role. Uh, and what year was that? No, 94 I think. Just thinking back. Wow. 93 or 94. So so even that methodology you're talking about is is what they're using still today, you know, a lot of shadow what they call shadow um um and also uh, digital twinning is where they literally will run a similar system. Maybe that's running on AI yeah. uh, in, in parallel. And part of that is they, they don't understand whether or not it's making the same decisions as the system it's replacing. So, you know, it's interesting that the tools and technologies and the approaches that maybe you, you were kind of familiar with um, as part of your kind of your surveying and your kind of your approaches to managing large projects and the complexity around them is transitioned nicely into kind of the QA landscape. And, you know, so, so what's that journey been like since, you know, starting in that role for the, for the, for the software company? Yeah. So, I mean, I was the first one to undertake that role at, at the time, the way the company was set up, they had a, a consultancy department who were responsible as well as doing the implementation and customer size. They're also responsible for making sure that any um, upgrades to the core system, uh, more specific modifications were actually correctly tested. And of course, what ended up being the case was they were spending more time with the um, end client and, and the implementation and not finding enough time to test the changes that were coming through. And of course, that was that was in some ways self-defeating because all that happened was, of course, as, as any system is, when it's not tested sufficiently, you find issues in production. So they they got themselves into that state and they decided to bring somebody in um, to work, you know, pretty much solely on testing of these modifications and changes and enhancements. And, and that was me. Um, and I think it was over about a two year period. It started with me and we ended up with a team of four. Um, so yeah, that they, they understood and, and saw, saw the, the consequences, if you like, of a lack of test process in what they were doing. 
I think that's a, a great kind of move to kind of this kind of leadership aspect and also kind of the strategy point. You know, I know like like myself, you you you've you've had a lot of experience with with things like test maturity models and yeah. so so what's your kind of journey been for kind of how you've put processes in place, how you've you manage teams? Yeah, so I mean even back then, so it was a case of really moving into that sort of team leadership role by default, because I was the first there, I suppose, and I'd set up um, the way the ways that I, I expected things to happen. Um, and we put some very basic processes in place that, that supported that, and therefore we had some elements of repeatability and traceability as well, um, even though I probably didn't really know that that's what I was doing at the time. Um, but I think that, that really progressed. So I, I stayed there for a couple of years before I decided, obviously, working for a very small software company, um, there was limited opportunity if you want to progress your career beyond beyond what I was doing. So, and I didn't really want to be a consultant. I did try it for a while, um, but it did mean driving around the country rather a lot. And I was, you know, leaving at city hours in the morning, getting back late. And I just thought this isn't this isn't what I want to do. Um, so, yeah, this is where it all, all strangely changed. Um, I I didn't really. I was getting a bit depressed with what I was doing, and. Um, I decided what I would need to do is, you know, start looking elsewhere to find out what else was out there. I didn't really have a lot of um, exposure. Um, there wasn't a lot of uh, information out there either about, you know, moving around between jobs. It's not like now where you can go onto the internet pretty much and do a, re- a search uh, and see what's available. I think at the time there was um, uh, a publication, was it Freelance Informer? Does that ring a bell? Um it- does indeed. Yes. <laughs> I think a friend of mine who was also in the industry um, lent me a copy, and I just did a bit of a trawl through to identify, you know, which agencies were out there. And there was one that was, was located not too far away from me. So I actually decided one day just to go and visit them um, and walk in the door, which I think was they were a bit surprised by. Um, but uh, the consequence of that was they actually had um, a, like a lead test analyst role available for uh, one of the banks up in uh, in Canary Wharf. And they were one of the very first buildings in, in Canary Wharf at the time. Um, and, yeah, I moved into that role. Um, and, yeah, that was just a completely different uh, way of looking at things. I was probably more embedded in more, sort of a larger program than I was within sort of a small software house. So it was a bit of a change in that respect. Um, and, <laughs> unfortunately, that was very short-lived. Um what happened there was that the the software house was effectively part of a larger organization. I won't just go into exactly who it was, but they were the decision was made to actually sell off the software arm of the company to I think it was EDS at the time. And the decision, of course, at that point was they needed to actually trim um, the resources uh, within the company, particularly the middle management layer. So. Um, I'd only been there a matter of a few months, and I found out that my my boss was being made redundant. Um, he came back from holiday. It was all very unfortunate. He came back from holiday and got called into his manager's office and was told there and then that he was no longer required. So a bit of a shock to him. Um, but I decided at that point I could see that you know that there were limitations on what, what would happen. And it was at that point I decided that um, um, I might like to look at going independent and, and becoming a contractor. And really, I think it was at that point that my career began to change. And and, and I moved um, to London Electricity 
uh, and they were doing the 1998 deregulation. So you know now you can go to pretty much anywhere to choose a supplier um, to purchase your electricity from. There was a massive program at the end of the 90s um, across well across the the country to deregulate the industry and enable competition. And it was that point really that my career began to take off, and I moved through. Um, different aspects of the program sort of in through team leadership into test management. Um, and that was probably that over about a six year period. So that really was where I think I developed my career into a true test management um, role. Um, and, and yeah, since then it's been a real sort of c- continual progress. I mean, there's never a linear progression to your career. I'm sure you've seen that yourself. Um, but I've I've managed to sort of na- navigate my way, I suppose, through different test management roles um, in different industry sectors as well. I've never been one to stay in one sector. Um, but eventually I got the opportunity uh, through a contact to um, head up a, a testing department. So it was an insurance underwriting company who were doing a major implementation and I was contacted, uh, thanks to a recommendation by somebody who used to work for me, um, to join um, or be interviewed and then join this company and, and head up their their QA and testing department. And so that sort of all leads into the the whole TMI, TMMI and assessment process. So a bit of a whistle-stop tour, and that's probably 10, maybe over 10 years ago I got to that point. But from then, I've had a series of different roles that relate between sort of head of testing, test program management, um, some sort of process improvement activities as well. So I guess you're wearing multi, multiple hats. Um, you know, I, I, I know the, that you have to change how you deliver news when you're either part of the organization or you're external. You know, what kind of, you know, tools and techniques did you find were success? Obviously, you've got things like prints too on one side of things yeah. for your, your your program uh you know uh, side of things then you've got your tmmi uh, and tmm kind of uh you know methodologies for testing and and also kind of quality so 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 what kind of um you know patterns did you find were, were useful to kind of navigate your way through those those kind of those leadership roles yes yeah, so i mean you're you're right i think the the importance of communication um cannot be underestimated, and in particular, understanding the level of communication and the type of communication that you have, for example, with a stakeholder, as opposed to somebody who's working alongside you, or maybe within your team, that they all do vary. So um, it is understanding what that message or what that that stakeholder is most interested in, and therefore what that message needs to to be. I think that was something to learn and, and something you, you, I think you do learn over time. Um, but for myself, I'm, I'm quite a, a structured person. Um, I do like process a lot and therefore the ability to produce meaningful reports from information and statistics for me is very helpful. But that's not to say you mustn't be able to to present, you know, as well as the, the raw stats, be able to present a message to a, a stakeholder in a particular way, as opposed to maybe a project manager or or somebody working within the test team. So, yeah, structure, yes, but understanding how to actually provide that information in a way that's meaningful to the end recipient. 
And I've always found that's maybe one of the most difficult things because there's a lot of politics, especially if you're in, you know, uh, financial services, you know, part of it, there's a lot of, you know, what are, what is the objective, what you're trying to help them achieve by giving them this information. Um, and, you know, you, you have to kind of really understand, you know, what matters to the, uh, to, to the organization and, and I think it's, it's a shame because a lot of things like Prince2, I realize, you know, you still can do Prince2 Foundation, but to be a practitioner, you know, some of those courses are disappearing. You know, you've got some of the new ITIL stuff coming through, but really doesn't cover kind of project management in the same kind of way. Um, you know, for those who are new to TMMI, um, so TMMI was a, um, a great kind of framework of, of, of reusable blueprints and design patterns. Uh, and the TMMI aspect was kind of more of an independent version of that. And, you know, I remember the, the experimenters guys and, yeah. and my, yeah, my, my good friend, uh, Stefan Zavakovic, who's oh, yes. on the show, uh, you know, he loves process as well. And I, I love process, you know, I think it gives structure. And I think also what's really important is, it's things like the ISO and and those other standards that maybe aren't always pulled in, not anymore. But you know, some organisations have to adhere to them. You know, did you find that while you're going through to different industry verticals, that there's a different viewpoint on quality and and what that means for each one of those sectors? That is true. I mean, yes. I mean, you, you mentioned Stephen there. I mean, yeah, Stephen's very much a process guy. Um, and I'm very keen um, to put new, sort of new ideas and, and stuff together. So yeah, I'm very very much a, a fan of what he's he's able to do, and and having worked with him as well, which does help. Um, in terms of quality, yes, it, it does vary, um, and it obviously um, you've got to throw in um, considerations about the different industries that that it applies to. Um, but obviously, I, I'm personally I find quality. Um, or the definition of quality is is one thing, but how it applies um, to the way different companies operate and what's important to them is, is something different. And we always have to remember it's all about, really, it's about the business. It's about how they operate and what their objectives are, and therefore the quality is aligned to that. So it will be different um, for each company that you work with. And I guess, you know, operating within a framework like TMMI and, you know, I, I guess, you know, part of that maturity is, is a really interesting one because I guess as you go into organizations, you establish that there are a certain level. So I think, you know, the UK yeah. on average is 2.2 or something, you know, and they may have an objective that they want to get from maybe two to three. And that might be because, you know, they're wanting to improve efficiency. They want to redu reduce waste. There's a, a goal that's a business kind of orientated goal. Um, yeah. I, I mean, models, I think models are useful. Um, there is this danger, I think, when you apply a model to an organization that it, it is a bit too black and white at times. So it's a bit like a box ticking exercise. If you're able to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, therefore you are at this level. But of course, you know what it's like with these, these assessments. You almost have to tick every box to be, you know, you know, graded at a particular level. And I'm not sure that's always appropriate for every organization. So although, yes, I'm a, I'm a fan of the principles, and I think it's really helpful to, a, to be able to do that assessment, I'm not sure it's always meaningful when you actually sort of, you know, give, give a company a rating. Um, 
yeah, but that, that's my opinion. Um, I think every, as it goes back really, so I suppose, to the, the fact that, as I said, every company has its own objectives and what they want to achieve, and therefore a level that's appropriate to one company may not be necessary for another. Absolutely, and, and that's exactly what I've, I've always seen. I, I always find it really fascinating because, you know, if you look at things like CMMI, um, yeah. you know, NASA back in the 90s were the first company to, to be hitting that level five, right, which is an unachievable kind of goal of, of, of level of process and maturity. Uh, and now, now they operate at level three. So, yeah. you know, with people like SpaceX and, you know, their ability to deliver at the same level of kind of quality, but, you know, faster, you know, the, the challenge really is do we, how much process do we need for process sake? Um, and I think, you know, that can even potentially go down a level lower in the sense of does that particular team or that particular program of work need that same level of, of due diligence kind of thing. And I think it can be very flexible. Um, and they, they do have a massive value. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who are probably entering, who are probably listening to this podcast now, who are, who are more, you know, born in the, the agile manifesto days with kind of the, you know, working software over, uh, documentation, um, maybe misinterpreted the idea that when they set the manifesto, they said, what the stuff on the left, we value more, but we still value the stuff on the right as well. Yes. Um, you know, there is a hard balance. You know, you must find that now when you're in your kind of your, your current role that actually how do you manage these kind of global testing functions that says how much is enough? Yeah, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, it's, it's always it's along the lines of the same question, isn't it? That, that you know, how do you know when testing is finished? It's or complete. It's um, it is very dependent, and of course, we we tend to set as an industry, we tend to set you know what's the definition of done or or what are the exit criteria for a particular uh, testing activity. We tend to sort of you know measure ourselves by by setting these these criteria up front. Um, whether that works, I'm never so sure because inevitably what will happen will we'll end up at the end. Um, it didn't quite come out as we anticipated uh, and then we'll make a, a list of exceptions and then decide whether we, we continue or, or need to revisit and, and uh, work on it some more before we deliver it. I think that's kind of the the kind of the expectation, isn't it? Around you know, we, be testing used to be kind of uh, an end of the, the the V model kind of life cycle, and it, the time would always be reduced. You you know, you'd have more and more pressure on doing more with less. Yeah. Um, and I think when we kind of pivot this a little bit, we look at like quality gates, and I know you've done quite a lot with quality gates. Yes. You know, this idea of you know enforcing a certain quality gate for entry or even exit of a, a particular phase, um, you know, those, those, those get blurred when you look at things like DevOps and, and Agile uh, and really what is enough? What, what is the role of a modern, you know, program test manager slash head of testing? What, what does your job look like now than what it used to look like? Right. Um, well, it's interesting. I'm actually working on a program right now, which I would say is a bit of a throwback uh, in terms of the approach, it is, I mean, because of the nature of the business, I won't go into again who the client is or, or what it's about, but the nature of the business is it, it's very, very structured and would have a lot of consequences if it, if it did go wrong. So it is following far more of what you would, would describe as a, as a Prince 2 approach. Um, 
not exactly a print to approach, but it's got far more documentation and far more governance than you would expect, for example, with more of a an agile or, or DevOps type of, of style delivery. Um, so right now, I would say from what I'm doing, it is very much held by gates and criteria and exception reporting and raid logs and all those sorts of things. Um, however, working at other companies more recently, or sorry, in the in the recent past, shall I say, um, yet the, the, that definitely changes. And it's more about understanding what the quality of the software is at a given point in time and whether you feel you are ready, for example, to deploy or, or go live. And, and I think that is a little bit of a different mindset required. And, it, and it's more about um, not necessarily sort of taking to drawing a line in the, in, you know, a line in the sand, as it were, and whether we can cross it or not. It, it's more about can we cross it in t- at different parts or different points and then maybe retrospectively, ch- you know, go back and revisit other areas and, before we then continue. And it's a it's a non-stop activity, isn't it? You it know, is. We talk about yeah. you know quality being you know everyone's responsibility and quality being baked in from day one from the from the requirements. Um, I'm going to ask a really controversial question now, um, but I think you've probably got some really valuable insight on this area. Um, so managing serve uh, you know test providers, yeah. you know whether they be onshore or offshore, you know. That's quite, I've always found that a real challenge to understand, you know, you get these raid statuses or, you know, you get your rag status and it's green, 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 then it's red. Um, you know, they, <laughs> and you, you've seen things like this happen before or, yes. you know, that there's, you know, a hundred tests being run and well, what does a hundred tests mean? You know, this kind of risk-based approach, you know, there's, you know, they've been automated, but what does that actually mean as far as quality is concerned? You know, how, how do you find managing third parties um, the best way and any kind of top tips you might have on that? Right. Okay. So it, it is a good point. And I think any any test manager who's done this and will have either been burnt or experienced pain um, by trying to manage an offshore um, provider. So I think one of the things that often gets missed within organizations is the understanding that it's not um, as simple as, you know, we, if we therefore offshore a particular function, such as such as testing, it actually you know we can replace a whole group of people, if you like, with a cheaper resource that's offshore. Okay, fine, but they still have to be able to deliver the same thing. And but also now they're in a different location, there's an additional overhead in managing that relationship, and and then communication becomes a very important factor in that. And and for me. And I know this is um, not necessarily what happens in most organizations, but to me, that all starts right at the beginning with the negotiations and actually drawing up the contract. So I've worked in, in too many organizations where there will be a contract with an external provider which will define an engagement, including testing, without any real definition of what that means and what um you know, deliverables and responsibilities should be. And I think unless you get that agreed and clear up front, it becomes very difficult to manage that relationship. Um, I know, um, I know when we, we communicated before we had a, 
um, we agreed to, to do uh, the the podcast, but we we talked about a little bit in, by email about the importance of key performance indicators as well, and I think that those are almost essential to be to be part of that contractual engagement. So you got absolute clarity in um, what to expect, what sort of reporting you will get, and therefore you got more. Um, understanding of, of you know how testing will be progressing and therefore you can identify potentially where things aren't going as well as you would expect so for me getting that you know agreement up front as early as possible um, is so important but obviously when you're actually doing it it's making sure that you have those channels of communication open all the all the time and you have a continual flow of information between the onshore and the offshore teams for example to ensure that you don't end up in a position where you do, as you said, go from green one day to red the following day without any, you know, any chance or warning that it might be the case. Or even any level of prediction. There's so many tools out there. And I think tools is obviously a bit of a bugbear. We won't go through too, too much detail, but I completely agree with your, you know, the idea around cascading KPIs. I think that's always to me personally has been the hardest thing I've ever done because you know, most of these tools, you know, I'm not going to name and shame any of the vendors, but are more project specific. So, yeah, yeah. How, what's the quality of, you know, a particular project? If you look at a level up and you look at the program, you look at the dependencies of upstream and downstream systems. So a number of systems, you know, pro- projects that have deliverables that impact other projects, you know, you start getting into this kind of, you know, uh, what I, you know, things like scaled agile, you know, you're, you're safe. Um, yes your dad and your less you start getting the portfolio level and you start getting the you know the the, the levels of the uh, product increments and things like that and you know i think that is a really important thing to actually say when you're con- when you're t- looking at the contract well how do you report those kpis what's the frequency of that what's the value of those what yep. the outcomes got to look like you know how do you best track you know those cascading kpis and do you have any kind of tips on things to to look at um in terms of tracking um obviously re- reporting is a key part of that um but obviously you can build in potentially two different tools you know getting that visibility pretty much on an on demand basis so th- that's obviously one way of doing it um sorry i missed the other part of the question sorry could you repeat that yeah, so it's it's kind of that kind of that question around so cascading KPIs. You know, when you you know you're asking somebody for some information, so you could be saying you know the results of a test run or a results uh, a weekly report, yeah, or maybe even a quarterly report. You know, there's information in there which is inc- incredibly valuable. So you know things like the raid log, you know things like um, you know uh, a racy for you know who's responsible and accountable for what. Um, and how that is goes through the different formalized quality gates. You know, what is the minimum documentation or the the evidence that you need to see? You yeah. know, what's that kind of? What does that look like in, in in kind of what in some of these kind of organizations that you work for? So, I mean, and yeah, normally, well, usually from what I've put in place myself, it, it tends to be driven by an old fashioned uh, test plan or some sort of test engagement model that would exist and, and therefore that's predefined so we'd expect um 
you know, reporting to be produced, as you say, either maybe daily, if it's execution, for example, daily or weekly, um, defect tracking being a very important aspect of that. Um, but obviously you want to maybe track the engagement across multiple programs and projects as well, which would potentially be done on a monthly basis. Um, and, and as you say, yeah, things like raid logs are so important to that and being able to actually manage that. You know, not just the fact that it's a report that's been received, but you have some sort of engagement to ensure that that report is understood as much as anything else. So the importance of, you know, producing a report is all very, very well, uh, as long as it's actually um, consumed and understood and therefore becomes meaningful to the recipients. Absolutely. You know, there's so many times that I've seen people pass information on without adding anything to it. I I call these people proxies, but this could be, you know, it could be a project manager. It could be a PMO resource where they'll take some raw data without doing any real analysis on it. uh, And then they'll just pass it on. So they're just, you know, a proxy. They're just taking data and then passing it through uh, without kind of adding anything to it. And I think, you know, we joke about things like, well, you know, companies are run on spreadsheets, but it's, it's amazing the amount of information that you can you can get from, you know, a power pivot these days or, a you know, a VLOOKUP. You know, I'm yeah. sure there's organizations that are just run on these. And then, like you said, you know, defect prediction um, or even, you know, understanding what, what that's looking like and, and also kind of those estimates around time. And, you know, with the new... Um, being topical with the new IR35, private IR35 coming through, you know, a lot of the contracts are changing to become more outcome-based. And I actually think this is quite a good thing. You know, instead of saying, you know, we're going to have a resource for six months, we don't really know what we're going to be doing for the next six months, depending on the project Gantt, right? But, you know, we know that they've got to provide a particular service to a certain level of equality and, you know, they can deliver that within a, whatever period of time, as long as the outcome is achieved. And yes. Do you see this being more kind of outcome-driven going forwards? I think so. I mean, I've always been a fan of making sure that deliverables are are specified, particularly when it comes to uh, third-party delivery. But I think the quality of the outcome, I think that is an important factor. Um, I hadn't heard of that from an IR35 perspective, but that's interesting. Um, And I I think that that is a potential measure that that could could be introduced there. Um, but certainly one that you should be monitoring if you're if you're dealing and managing third party delivery. Sure, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit because um, you know, um, what do, what kind of tips do you have for people who are trying to start off in the leadership side of things? You know, what kind of good resources do you find are incredibly valuable to you? Sure. So I think um, this is one of these things that. Um, Companies don't necessarily always, you know, they focus a lot of energy or, or input into. So they tend to promote people from within, if possible, which is a good thing. Um, but there's often not that much support in enabling people to understand what the needs are of maybe moving into a leadership role, because it is different. It's definitely um, a different view or or mindset if you like in terms of what you're trying to do so obviously if you're an individual and you're focused on what you need to do you're worried about yeah maybe maybe working with your your team but it's really about what you're delivering and how you're delivering up to your team leader or manager when you move into more of a management or, or team leadership role you've then got to consider the wider implications of what you're doing how you're leading the team and the individual's um, 
within the team. And I think one of the the things that people don't necessarily understand is that that you need to think about the the entire picture, if you like. So it, it I'm just trying to think of the right the right way of describing it. It, it's um, how do you make sure, for example, that your whole team is working effectively together? And how do you make sure that they understand from you what your expectations are? But how do you also ensure that you provide the ability for them to deliver what they need to for you? So it, it's it's not about just about sort of direction. That's part of it. But it's also about enabling and listening and, and dealing with with issues and unblocking problems and you know all these sorts of other things that have to be be considered. But I think one of the skills that's all that's part of that is being able to listen um, and spending time with people within your team to understand the way they work, so you can get the best out of your team as a whole. So this could even be kind of down the Myers Briggs kind of <laughs> landscape of trying to understand, you know, those stakeholders and how they take and you know interpret data how they want data to be provided to them as far as reports what formats yeah. work with them yeah so it's bi-directional yeah. it, it is up and down um and um obviously when you move up that that sort of communication will change as well so you have to understand how to communicate and and provide the information that people at different levels require it's, it's it's so fascinating you know we could definitely talk about talk about this all day but what's the best way for people to reach out to you kind of you know uh, if they've got questions or they want to subscribe to your uh, your 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 podcast and sure. blog what's what's the best way to get you so i mean probably the easiest way to find me would be um on linkedin i'm pretty pretty easy to find um i think yeah it's you'll find me if you look up phil burgess there i'm there i'll pop up i'm sure um in terms of the podcast there's a website which is itcareerenergizer.com you can contact me there um, you can find out about the episodes that, that are that are online. I'm also on Twitter um, at PhilTechCareer. Um, yeah, they're probably the easiest ways. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, either through yeah, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whoever it might be, yeah, just just go on, find the podcast, and, and click subscribe. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for, for being part of the show. And there's some really useful tips. And what we'll do is uh, I'll add those links to the, the actual show information and we'll make sure that people can contact you and reach out. Yep. Great. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Phil. And thanks to your amazing podcast on the IT Career Energizer. 